Kia ora koutou, and welcome to everyone who is in on the carcass who. Welcome to 2022. Um, Peter, uh, Peter Bale here from Auckland. Um, uh, we were saying just as we were starting that my, my measure of a success of a summer is how many swims I've had. Um, tell us about your your. Well, quota. I've been doing an awful lot of swims, and I'm, and I'm I'm very fortunate to be living in Hearn Bay. So I um I have been going to Hearn. I, I check the tide religiously on my Windy app, and I get down there as often as I can. And I have had picnics on it. And I think that this is true, it's, as you know, and some of the people on the uh, on the on the call will know. I'm sort of living here by accident, or back living here by accident, and part of that my plan has been to really enjoy the summer and so i've absolutely loved this and i kind of think bernard psychologically that there is there has been a thing going on where jacinda the government has uh been kind of wanting us to have a memorable free easy summer because it may be about to get a lot harder that's right um i went to the labor caucus retreat an annual thing they do it's really the sort of start of the Mm -hmm. political year and uh that was one of her first comments when she opened the conference which which was to say you know um we're all grateful for this summer that we all needed and deserved but now we have to uh, uh brace for omicron Mm. And um, there's some complaints that the government, you know, took its foot off the pedal um, through summer. It didn't do enough in terms of preparing for Omicron. For example, the opposition has called for uh, the booster shots to have started earlier, that we should have been able to book the booster shots earlier than last Mm -hmm. Monday, uh, that um, the children's vaccination should have started earlier than, than, uh, than last Monday. Um, but I think you're right that um, a lot of people were pretty exhausted at the end of the year, including a lot of the vaccinators and a lot of the people in the yep. hospital system. And I think that period, I think the government seems to have been exhausted as well. And that's no surprise because it always strikes me, and we have discussed this before, that there are only about four people running the entire government, it would seem, which is um, Jacinda Ardern, Chris Hipkins, uh, to some extent Chris, Chris Farfoy, although he's missing in action as far as I can tell on, on many things at the moment, much as I much as I enjoy his company. But, you know, there's... A, it's, it's a remarkable, and Grant Robertson, of course, it's a remarkably small cabinet within a cabinet. And I think we, we actually, it's funny enough, we saw that complaint really come out, didn't we? This With the some of the complaints emerging inside the Green Party about them having neutered themselves by, by participating in this government are sort of about the scale to which nobody in, in the rest of the cabinet gets a, gets a look in. Yeah, I mean, like every government, really, you have a kitchen cabinet in which four or five people sort of run the show. Um, mm. And in this one, it's clearly... Um, the Prime Minister and Grant Robertson. Then you you add on, as you say, Chris Hipkins, who's got not just education but COVID-19. Then you've got um, Andrew Little, who, as Health Minister, has uh, got... Oh, yes, I forgot about him, the man who seems to complain mostly about his own department and the difficulty of running the health department. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You won't believe believe how bloody difficult this is. It's really impossible. And then think, well, actually, you are the minister. You better get on with it. That's right. And this year, he's not only going to deal with the most extreme stress our hospital system's ever had in terms of actually having people in in the door in beds and in ICUs, but then also having to reform the damn thing. Yes, I think that might be a rather unwelcome... Don't you think there's going to be a, going to be a couple of wake-up calls there? I, I find that extraordinary that we're going to try and do that 
uh, scale of of, of uh, reform, alleged reform, um, upheaval in the health service at a time when all of those DHBs are going to be working their trousers off, or should be working their trousers off, to deal with this problem. Would you? Would you? Could you imagine that that might get postponed politically? No, I, what I, you're I think, hearing up there. Down yeah, there? no, they've re- the motion. The wheels are definitely set mm. in motion. The new um, authority is up and running. The CEOs are appointed. The DHBs are are going for it. In a way, Omicron and Delta and COVID to start with has proven the need for um, a much more unified uh, health system. And in a way, it's been forced through in advance by the Ministry of Health having to do a lot of the work of a centralised system that they're trying to build. The unfortunate thing is the Ministry of Health was um, originally set up as a policy ministry, not a doing mm, yeah. ministry. And, and very much has that reputation as being a bit of a think tank. And, and Ashley, much as we may think of them, him as, him as uh, you know, St. Ashley, apparently has a, has a reputation for being overly concerned with detail, overly a bit of a control freak, uh, and not quite as charming as he often appears on television. Yeah, he's certainly got um, a lot higher popularity levels in the general public than I think mm. uh, there might be inside the ministry and certainly inside the cabinet. Um, but uh, And it's interesting that he was not involved at all in any of the uh, announcements over the last couple of days, mm. where perhaps in the past they might have pulled him in as even as a prop to um, to show the government's, you know, science... Leadership and science. Official, and focus on science yeah. but, you know, I've made a terrible mistake over summer, uh, which relates to Ashley, Ashley Bloomfield and all of this, and I'm going to admit it and have a brief discussion of it, because I also realise that I've changed the entire running order and we're doing COVID first, but I, I made the mistake uh, earlier in the summer of um, starting to watch, starting to watch Cam, uh, follow Cam Slater, uh, a whale oil on um, Twitter. Uh, and I have to say, what a thoroughly unpleasant uh, negative human being sitting in a kind of vat of his own steaming bile most of the time, just throwing, well, th- throwing shit from a steaming vat of bile is a, is a fairly hideous concept, but it's pretty much what he does. And I, I, but I did notice in a museum one where he um, got a tip that uh, Ashley Bloomfield's son, and Ashley Bloomfield were on the, on the exactly on the Cook Strait ferry, and the sun happened to be reading 1984, which of course any teenager is going to be reading of if course. they're doing it at literature at school. And of course, Cam Slater drew this as a um, as a kind of indication of um, you know the 1984 surreal uh, fascist um, oh. <laughs> loss of freedom world that we're living in. I, I also found, I went to uh, uh, to the chocolate factory in Mungafai recently, and uh, there were an awful lot of Voice of Freedom anti-vax things oh, all yeah. around that building, around that area. But those people have really done a very effective job of, of getting their message out. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they transition as a political force, not just, I mean, I know Brian Tamaki is vaguely affiliated with them, but that whole anti, anti-freedom or, or belief that this is part of, you know, a secret plot to, um, to leverage government control you know, that's, that, that group is not uninfluential, it seems to me. Yeah, they're not getting any traction in the mainstream media. TVNZ has pretty mm. much decided to completely ignore them on just about everything, including these quite un, un uh, quite nasty um, scenes where protesters were hammering on the doors and windows of vaccination centres as kids were getting mm. vaccinated mm. earlier this week. That's pretty um, un, unfriendly. Uh, and... I do wonder, you know, given our vaccination rates are over 90% now in most places, 
Mm. Um, there aren't that of many the, of the of the of the of the of, of the uh, yeah. subset of people who are currently eligible. So it goes, yeah. goes way down with kids, of course. Yeah, I I think uh, uh, over time this is going to be a relatively um, low number, particularly as the mandates take effect. And it's interesting that the number of people who've uh, quit or been fired because they haven't been vaccinated is extremely mm. low, actually. Less than 4% is the number of uh, um, situations where people have said they're not vaccinated. And the number mm-hmm. of um, firings in uh, some of the mm. more public-facing um, places like the police, the hospital system... Mm. Schools, is, yeah. ..is very low. We're talking, you know, dozens rather than thousands. And... Uh, I do wonder if it'll burn itself out um, uh, because you know, anyone looking at the situation with any sort of remote sense of um, fairness sees New Zealand with 10 deaths per million versus yes. the US and the UK with 2,500 deaths per million. And I think one of the reasons... Yeah, um, I just don't know how we would sustain that morale-wise or, the- or morale wise or politically in New Zealand. I just I don't know what the number is that we were going to talk about numbers in a minute, but I, you know, I don't know what the number is that people will say is sustainable, but it, it certainly isn't 2,500 yeah. per million. Yeah, and I do wonder, um, uh, when you look at the the feeling in the public sphere in places like the UK and the US just how much the you know the the grief and the shock and the uh, number of people who are hospitalized and the stress in the hospital systems for so long has changed the nature of the political debate where there's a lot more aggression a lot more um Isolation and polarization. You mean whether it's added to the poli- well, I think it's definitely certainly in the U.S. Uh, mandates for vaccination and and also the, the the campaign on vaccination has accelerated the polarity. It, it, very interesting to see, and we'll go, we'll do a bit more on Boris Johnson. But one of the things that Boris did this week in order to save his skin with his own conservatives was abandon without any particular scientific evidence abandon all anti-covid measures you know mask wearing and so on um pretty much at at a stroke and and it's probably not insignificant that his chief scientific advisor resigned last week that is i had missed that yeah that's Mm. that's pretty desperate stuff isn't it when you start to use public health as a political tool to guarantee your own survival sounds a lot like you know, the sort of thing Judith Collins might do if, if she had been... That's right, um, that's um, right. Who? Uh, exactly. Um, yeah. and- Politically, Bernard, it seems to me as though Luxon is still playing catch-up. You know, there's the, the only thing... That, I mean, Chris Bishop is still there. The only thing that, that National seems able to do, and, and I guess it's, you know, it is this strange period of, of, of uh, a lot of a quiet period, but... You know, the criticism that they're levering at, levering at the government is not really sticking, it would appear. No, and uh, um, they've, they've had a relatively slow start from Luxon, at least. Chris Bishop's been busy firing off um, the, the uh, regular and often quite useful pointers about where the government could uh, improve. And it's, it's, it, is, it is a real thing that there's a couple of big holes in the government's um, mm. strategy. I think it's worth sort of focusing on, the, on those right now. Uh, the government obviously is saying we're not going to have lockdowns. As soon as Omicron spreads in the community, we'll go to red. That means that there's no more of these 100, uh, um, more than 100 uh, gatherings. So a lot of the big weddings, a lot of the big events, a lot of the conventions will go. And you'd have to think if you were 
trying to plan anything with more than 100 people in the next six months, you might as well just give up. So the convention centre mm. business must be just on their knees thinking, oh, this will never end. And also, this, uh, so there's the problem there where uh, um, the uncertainty about um, when red starts and how long it will last um, is a problem for those large events. Um, and we've got this hole at the moment where... The government is offering a guarantee, effectively, an insurance scheme for events worth more than with more than five thousand people, but mm-hmm. the gap between one hundred and five thousand is uncovered. And the other area uh, that's a, that's a gap in this government strategy at the moment is around rapid antigen tests. So until now, the Ministry of Health has been very reluctant to let these things out into the wild to allow people to you know have a bunch on the shelf and use them whenever they feel like it. Mm-hmm. Unlike in, in other countries where you can just walk into any chemist or grocery store and get a handful of these things and put them on the shelf ready for when you're not feeling up to it. And in Australia, it's been a complete carnage because uh, the government there wasn't prepared at all, hadn't bought enough rapid antigen chests, was relying on the private sector, pharmacies, Harvey Norman to be selling these things to the public. And it led to complete chaos, um, rorting of prices and massive shortages. So our Ministry yeah. of Health has bought 4.6 million of them, but they seem to be stuck in warehouses and the ministry until now has been saying the only way you could use it was to actually go to a pharmacy and get the pharmacist to administer whereas the uk of course has posted them to every house yeah which has been a very very and i was talking to somebody in the uk last night and they you know that was this morning in fact and they last night and they they do they've been testing twice their entire family twice a day for the last three weeks because they had a, you know, and it's, it's quite an, it's, it's a it's a part of this process that we you know i know many people have had pcr tests but self-testing and of course it completely eliminates then the uh, or at least undermines the accuracy of the uh testing and we'll have to look at hospitalizations much more effectively but the whole idea of the personal personal responsibility involved in testing is a really interesting one to me because I'm, I'm i tend to be a believer in the nudge economics idea and i quite like the idea of taking a little personal responsibility um, to at least do a lateral flow test and then seek a PCR test if, if, if one needs to. And um, particularly you know, now... Be, I, mean, I just think there's a huge expectation on personal responsibility as, as Omicron um, comes in, the way, the way Jacinda described, Jacinda Ardern described it, but also just the reality of it is particularly if it doesn't send you to hospital, you're really just going to have to um, kind of knuckle down and look after, look after yourself. That's right. And um, particularly now we've we've gone past the point of hoping for elimination or even suppression. You use these uh, rapid antigen tests as a way to uh, take some of the pressure off um, the essential uh, workers uh, force, because you've got this real problem at the moment, and certainly in Australia and possibly here, where people are ordered if they're a close contact of someone who has tested positive or is clearly um, uh, uh, symptomatic to stay at home. But um, you want to be able to test those people who are close contacts uh, so that they can go to work if there is a negative test. Now, I know that the accuracy of the negative test is not as good as for the PCRs, but when you're in a situation where clearly the PCR test will be overwhelmed, we can only do about 40,000 a day, you, the, you risk getting into the situation that Australia got into where they had queues for cars that were five or six hours long where yeah. people were waiting a week for results of PCR tests 
there's no point in doing that. It's actually one of the reasons that Scott Morrison is likely to lose the federal election in May. We can only we can but we can but hope. <laughs> That's right. It's because yeah. he stuffed up the rapid antigen test so royally, and this is one of the risks for the government that they really look behind the curve on rapid antigen tests. Mm. We've only got 4.6 million. It's less than one per person. The experts I've been reading uh, are... Well, if, you, if people are doing it two or three times a day, you need quite a few. Exactly. You know, people are yeah. saying we, we need you know, 50, 60 million of these things that we're going to get through the next six months. And, of course, the problem now is that everyone in the world wants them. The Americans uh, were buying half a billion and distributing them for free mm. to everyone. Mm. And uh, the Australians are trying to buy them as well. And, unfortunately, the way that the buying has been centralised here with the Ministry of Health... Um, there's been problems in the past with MB getting slow access to the vaccines. Yeah. Um, the pharmaceutical industry doesn't love Pharmac at all, at all for obvious no, reasons. No, well, I think Bernard, just, just the, the, uh, our great friend Bernard, um, uh, Patrick Smelly has done a lot of very good work on this, on the what it would appear, and it's come out in some of the FOIA stuff. You know, the the um, it would appear that the health ministry has been weirdly reluctant to to accept a couple of new, of the New Zealand companies that were you know were um, bidding to supply this this material these these tests. That's right, and one of the I'm not sure that's going to look terribly good on the Royal, Royal Commission that eventually happens about this. Well, yes, there's not a lot of talk about a Royal Commission yet, but it will come. And um, th- this business of the Ministry of Health trying to centralise everything, trying to do things at scale, makes sense. And they have a culture um, after you know more than a decade or two of Pharmac of being very aggressive about controlling the pharmaceutical purchasing process. Mm. But when you're desperate to get as many of these things as possible, and also to do it in a way that that uh, they're accountable. The problem in Australia, for example, is that everyone, every company and retailer has gone out and sourced their own version of rapid antigen tests all of which have different tolerance levels, mm. different reporting systems. And then when everyone started getting their results back, there was no centralisation for the data process. So they had to make that up as they go along. So Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, Bernard, I, that, you know, Julian there is being extremely mean to me and suggesting that I'm actually the, the thinking person's David Seymour, which is not a million miles <laughs> away from the truth. Cause, um, but... Uh, there is an argument, of course, you know, the way, the way the government here has stuck to the PCR as the gold standard, that it has made it very, very measurable. What, what did you make of the government's announcements? Because I see, you know, if you look at the papers or, or the sites today, there are cases in, the Tas- in Nelson, Tasman, there are cases in uh, New Plymouth. So it would appear as though Omicron now is within the community, correct? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if we get the announcement about going to red within the next three or four days. Hmm. And um, certainly in the next two weeks, we'll get there. If, if Omicron isn't already um, circulating in the community, I'll, um, I'll eat my hat, uh, one of them. And I, um, I think it's quite likely that um, we'll be headed towards the peak of a very nasty surge in the next uh, four or five weeks. Yeah, because now, it was interesting today, Bernard, the, the, the modeler Rod Jackson and another Jackson from the DHB counties Manukau was were sort of um, in the Herald talking about 1,500 cases, I think, let I me mean, just look it up, 1,500 cases, uh, 2,000 cases a day, um, 18, sorry, 1,800 daily cases a day in the next, over the next, you know, starting now and you know, sort of over the next six weeks, uh, six weeks. Now, I have, we're going to talk hopefully next week to one of the models, I'm not going to reveal which one, 
but I was talking to them the other day, and they were talking about one and a half million cases in total, and uh, 500 deaths over over the sort of period of a, of a peak outbreak. I, I will get more detail on that hopefully, hopefully uh, over the next week or so. But you know that's that's a lot less than. Um, uh, uh, Sean Hendy was forecasting last year with that that rather scare scare tactic figure of I think somewhere between five thousand and seven thousand deaths, which may have related specifically to Delta. Um, and there is an argument that we almost need Omicron to come in steadily, hopefully slowly. Not that it operates slowly, of course, but in a, in a, almost in a controlled way, so that we get that combination of herd immunity through, through vaccination, mild impact, relatively mild impact, although, again, still unclear about what um, long COVID means for, for Omicron and so on, because otherwise you're you're dealing constantly with Delta, which is, is, is a, you know, and you, you're almost preserving a reservoir of Delta in New Zealand. Yeah, one of the discussions at the moment, and it did come up in the press conference in uh, New Plymouth yesterday that I, that I attended, mm-hmm. was this idea of having the the peak of the wave go through in the autumn, in in, in summer, when there's less competition for hospital beds from yeah. people who've got the flu. And I think that's something the government is thinking about. Uh, and also it's got a particular issue, and this is another sort of hole in its strategy where there's a lot of um, political pain, but also f- from a business point of view, a lot of uncertainty, which is when the borders reopen. So the current... Uh, model is that um, people in New Zealand will be able to return MIQ free, uh, self-isolate from the end of February. This was delayed from uh, mid-January, just at the end of last year. And on Monday night, we got this really um, surprising announcement from MB that Mm. there would be no new MIQ slots uh, offered for March and April, which seemed to suggest the country was sort of shutting up shop for good. But um, there's there's two things uh, that could uh, this could mean. Either yes, we are shutting up shop and we're using the border as a way to try and flatten the curve, or uh, come the beginning of March, we are opening up, and one of the reasons that you could open up at the beginning of March is because the first of the big Omicron waves has gone through, mm. and opening up actually doesn't increase your risk that much. In fact, that's the World Health Organization advice about. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's, it's very interesting how that. I mean, it, 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 it is in a way, you know, all of the people, the, the Spanish Prime Minister and various others, talking about now trying to class, classify this as endemic rather than pandemic. There's a, there's a strange, and we maybe need an epidemiologist on to, to explain this, but there is a sense in which, or a way in which Omicron kind of snuffs out, it snuffs itself out um, if, if dealt with effectively. And I just want to be really clear in saying this, that I am not um, advocating getting it as a way to yes. solve problems or that getting it is better than being vaccinated. And I, I did, in fact, look up today my my vaccine thing to in order, my COVID, in order to see when I can do my booster. But still four months in New Zealand, I think, isn't it, that we're talking about that the recommended period is four months, whereas Australia has gone to three. Yeah, and that, that may be one of the um, tools that the government can use if it's getting into um, a bit of trouble, which you'd have to expect. The other one is whether the schools are allowed to open as planned at the end of this yes. month. So in Queensland, that's one of the things they've done. They've delayed the school opening for two weeks to try and reduce the, the spread. Although you could argue that 
the school openings are actually a perfect opportunity to do mass vaccinations of kids to try and um, get some yes, protection well, in there. We, if, if, they, if, they, if the uh, anti-vax brigade are objecting to that, they'll be, they'll be standing out oh, yeah. schools then as well. Yeah. That's so, going to be a, a very interesting social question. You're right. I mean, we, we, we really haven't made much progress on the vaccination of kids, I believe, as far as as far as things are going. Yeah, we've got about 50 or 60,000 done, so that's still less than a quarter. And um, there's a hope that once uh, uh, the kids start getting vaccinated in volume, you'll see a lot of the boosters done as mum and, mm. and or dad take the kids to get vaccinated, they get their booster as well. Because we're a bit behind the curve on the boosters at the moment. Less than half of those who are eligible have actually got the booster. And mm. we need to get to, by the end of February, 80% of those eligible for the booster. So, when you went to that thing in New Plymouth, Bernard, did you was there any contrition or explanation from from government ministers about the Maori question in vaccinations? I mean, I, I heard Hone, Hone Harawira, who who I increasingly find a credible person whenever I hear him on the on the wireless, talking about you know not actually wishing Northland to go down to, from from red to orange. Um, is is there a belief that? the Maori uh, vaccination question has been, to a large extent, resolved, that, that there is sufficient vaccination in there, or is it still lagging? It's still lagging, um, and uh, that's because uh, the vaccination started late for many uh, Maori people who, are, um, because of their structure of the population, are much younger, and therefore the way that um, the vaccines were prioritised at the beginning, prioritised for older people, people with health issues, mm -hmm. meant that that younger cohort of Māori and Pacifica, yeah. sort of simply by the nature of their age, uh, were um, unable to get access. Now, things have improved certainly in the big cities, but up in Northland, um, Whanganui, Taranaki, East Coast, um, there is certainly you know a lagging, lagging uh, vaccination rates. The problem with Omicron, though, is it's it's sort of um, now that we know that you know it, even if you're triple vaccinated, you're going to get it maybe mildly, and you're going to spread mm. it. That 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 um, that means those people who thought they might be able to avoid it, they're everyone's going <laughs> everyone's going to get it. Yeah, there's an interesting aspect of this as well. I was listening this morning, and we'll, we'll do it in the skateboarding dog story to the to the very very good ABC podcast called Coronavirus, and they were talking in there about Novavax, the um, which is, again, one of the more traditional inactivated virus-type vaccines uh, has been approved for use in Australia by some authorities. It isn't, it isn't released yet, but it's, it's going through its approval process. And if you remember, there were people in New Zealand, particularly on the anti-vax brigade, including the um, eccentric mayor of Coromandel, who was saying that they would wait for Novavax. But I noticed that overnight that um, uh, Nature magazine um, had a study which showed that most of the inactivated virus vaccines, and that's particularly, uh, I mean, Sputnik is an inactive vaccine, and the and the Sinopharm, the Chinese one, is an inactivated vaccine. This is, if you remember, as opposed to the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer, um, that they have very very little. They they elicit very few uh, antibodies now with uh, uh, Omicron. They may still protect against severe disease, but it would appear that. Um, the mRNA um, vaccines offer, offer better protection against Omicron at the moment. Yeah, and this is one of the against, big... against more severe illness. And with my um, economics uh, hat on, this is one of the really big concerns that maybe a lot of people in New Zealand haven't worked out yet. 
that China, you know, our largest trading partner and Australia's largest trading partner, which has been, uh, which has a lower death rate than us, even <laughs> that's mm-hmm. how well they've done it, still has a very hard elimination strategy. In part because their vaccinations have been done with the Sinopharm uh, vaccine, mm-hmm. and they know that when Omicron goes through, it's really going to wreak all sorts of havoc because the population is less protected because they're, they're mostly done with the Sinopharm vaccine. And that's why they're so super aggressive on their lockdowns. Mm. And you've seen um, the Chinese economy slow substantially uh, at the end of last year and early this year, as you've seen some large cities, four or five of them, and they tend to be the ones with like 15, 20 million people, locked down utterly. So locked down in Beijing earlier this week an office building where one person uh, tested positive was immediately locked down. We're Mm. talking, you know, welded bars with everyone still inside the office building. (laughs) Like like one of those, um, I don't know if everyone's seen Station Eleven, uh, which is, by the way, fantastic. um, I don't know uh, when he has the time to watch it. Carry on. Yes, so Station Eleven is, by the way, if you haven't watched it yet, it's it's absolutely brilliant on the – uh, uh, it's a sort of a post-apocalyptic but um, uh, quite arty and quite thoughtful um, mm. a series about um, what happens when you have a pandemic, including yeah, one. Just, just on that, just sorry, just, just, just going back for a minute to the to, to the Australian comparison. The other, the other one that we sometimes forget is Western Australia. Mm. Now, uh, uh, Julian, I think further on, we're saying you know Queensland shows the example of why it's, there's no no point in trying to combat combat Omicron, but. You know, Western Australia has just reversed its plan to open up in early February. Mm. Uh, they've had one death in the entire state throughout the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. The state governor has, um, Premier has really, you know, hitched his entire uh, political future and real, real, you know, just he, he's really hitched to a, to a closed off um you know, lockdown, lockdown Western Australia. It's an extraordinary step. And it's it's one of the more interesting comparators, I think, for New Zealand, because it's, you know, not, not dissimilar size, but it's also, you know, they've persisted with what we uh, abandoned in November and October or December and October, October around, um, you know, moving, moving from elimination to constraint. Yeah, no, they're, um, they're either loved or hated in Australia. <laughs> We talk to anyone in New South Wales and Victoria and they loathe the sort of smug <laughs> aggression of the mm, uh, West mm. Australians. Well, actually, yes, I suppose West, West, Western Australians are very good at passive-aggressive behaviour as are New Zealanders. So <laughs> yeah. There's something about the isolation, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Um, so uh, look out for Station 11, in which one of the scenes is an entire uh, group, uh, plane load of um, people who didn't get the disease, locked themselves in an airport for years to, mm. to avoid getting the damn thing. And uh, one particular plane arrived with one or two people on board and they're all allowed to, you know, die inside the plane. I'm mm. not suggesting that's what well, that China is absolutely doing. Absolutely, cherry. So, speaking of MIQ, yeah, um, you know, what is what is the you know what is the government going to do about that? What do you think? What is it? Is it going to abandon the entire process around April? Is it as one you know, as we might have thought? Yeah. Well, I actually think there's division within the cabinet on this. Mm. Uh, Chris Hipkins, uh, for months now, has been subtly pushing to open up. And to acknowledge that um, at some point we're going to let it rip is, is a nasty phrase, which I think uh, over uh, simplifies the issue. But um, you know, try to control and and let this thing go through in a way that doesn't hurt too many people, because mm-hmm. elimination is impossible. 
and he, he was the one who first talked about this. And there are obviously others in Cabinet who want to have a much more lockdown approach. And I think the Prime Minister is in that very conservative camp. Is, is that partly because they've just their, their reputation has now kind of adhered to it? Yeah, I mean, um, whatever happens in the next few years, Jacinda Ardern will be known mm. as the Prime Minister who made the lockdowns work to mean New Zealand had the lowest death rate in the, in the OECD and one of the best performing economies, no matter what she does. From, mm. But from now on, there is a risk that, you know, if there's a blowout, if we go from, you know, 10 deaths per million to 1,000 deaths per million, not that I'm suggesting that's likely or possible or desirable, of course, uh, that is, um, that'll take the shine off. So for the PM, she genuinely thinks that um, using whatever tools you can to avoid significant outbreaks is a good mm. idea. And yes, there's a lot of pain from those people overseas, and there's a lot of um, you know awful stories of broken families, dying parents, all of that. People overseas who can't get back in. But the brutal electoral truth of it is that there are only 65,000 of those one million New Zealand overs, New Zealanders overseas who will vote in the election, mm. and sh mm. she knows the um, the electoral mathematics and the focus grouping says that New Zealanders are quite happy to have this sealed tight border, even though there are a lot of people in business and a lot of individuals who'd like to you know get the travel moving again. It hasn't hurt our economy in in large parts. Shockingly, we've had no international tourism, no international students. But still, mm. we get we had economic growth in the last year, thanks in part to um, and some inflation. Yeah, and some inflation. Uh, thanks in part to the rest of the export sector doing very well. By the way, we're going to likely have a, um, a Fonterra payout this year, a record high Fonterra payout of an year, over nine bucks a kilogram, and um, all of those things have meant that the economic impact of having closed borders has been much less than we all expected. And the benefits as a tool to control uh, um, COVID have been much more than we expected. I mean, even now, I'm still amazed that Omicron hasn't gotten through, or doesn't look like it's gotten through for nearly eight weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, Delta yeah, eventually no, that's, got that's through. Exactly what, funny enough, you know, it was a sort of six or eight week summer that I was betting on before we before we suddenly had a tremendous screech of breaks. And that now, you know, we're being warned that there's a screech of breaks ahead, I think. Um, I'm sure you're absolutely right. Yeah, thank you, and Mr. Anderson for Bonham Palmer. You're, you're right, and there's, there's others coming up. I think in, in Nelson. Um, and Bernard, what, what about the economic impacts in this? Because you know, somebody mentioned supply chains before. Those problems are still continuing. We have, you know, incipient inflation. Your view about inflation not being a particular serious problem is not necessarily the way it's being seen in the Fed at the moment. And that might allow us to do a segue from COVID into the economy. What you know, what is the COVID economy in New Zealand? promising for this year, apart from the enormous payout for the for the dairy farm. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, going into Christmas, retail sales have been relatively um, flat and surprised a few people who were expecting a big rebound after the end of the lockdown in Auckland and through a summer which has been pretty good. I think a lot of people didn't plan for summer. They didn't plan to travel. And so a lot of people stayed at home. And of course, um, uh, there's a few people worried about what's going to happen this year with Omicron mm. and um, concerned about 
high inflation and sort of be- tightening their belts. So the spending through the economy hasn't been quite as aggressive as many expected. And uh, however, you know, the construction sector is still going gangbusters and exports are going well. And of course, we've got this inflation issue. And f- for me, this is the, the core fight or the core um, event this year will be what the Reserve Bank does about inflation and will mm. the Reserve Bank action uh, be a trigger for some sort of repricing downwards of assets, mm. uh, house prices. Which, which asset do you think might come oh, be well, repriced? And New Zealand, the um, only gold, asset that matters um, is house prices. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So we saw in December, we've got numbers from the Real Estate Institute this week showing that House prices actually did fall 1% in the house price index mm-hmm. in December from November, and seasonally mm-hmm. adjusted, it was half a percent. Now, that's the first fall in house prices since the very first lockdown in May. Mm. And we've now got ANZ forecasting this week. They see a 7% fall in prices. Now, that is um, about in line with what we saw the fall in prices in 2008-9 during the first global financial crisis, but they didn't fall any more than that. And I don't think anyone is forecasting any sort of 20, 30% fall in prices uh, because this is the thing. Once house prices start falling, then the Reserve Bank starts to get nervous about the wealth effect. Mm. And, of course, politically, the government, too, is in a position where it doesn't want a house price collapse. And we're already seeing the government a little bit concerned, nervous about this, particularly around the uh, consumer uh, uh, finance and um, the the triple CFA, the consumer... um, I should know this off the top of my head. It's the Consumer Contracts and Consumer Finance Act Mm -hmm. changes, which means that banks have to actually think more. Do a lot more due diligence. Due diligence on people's um, uh, affordability uh, um, uh, measures. So that means asking them about um, where they eat out for dinner and and, Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not they're going to have babies, which is an interesting one. You wouldn't expect. Yeah, I wonder who has babies now. I mean, I think possibly we might have factored that in in the past. I mean, it is weird how so many of these sort of standard social things end up being essentially against women um, yeah. you know, and, 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 and against the whole idea that, you know, whether it's labor law, maternity leave, that kind of thing. It's like it's like having a child is, um, you know, and it should not need not be an economic negative. Yeah. I mean, the last thing Sorry, we I'm want is, a, yeah, no, no. The last thing we want in a mortgage application is a box which says, are you pregnant or not? Yeah, yeah, and how many how many um, how many mashed avocados do you have? Yes, that's 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 right. Yeah. Maybe that's in what mortgage months. brokers do in the in the future. They welcome someone into their office and ask well, speak, and offer of them a glass of wine a, to check. This is a momentary see. digression, but did you see the fabulous story about um, within the within the uh, case being presented against the Trump Corporation by um, by the New York Attorney General? It was a fantastic. Um, uh, he's he's accused of you know pathologically overvaluing the value of his real oh, estate through right. various means, and yeah. in one case, by overstating the square footage of his um, uh, penthouse in the Trump um, Trump Tower for, to thirty thousand square feet from the real twenty uh, ten thousand square feet, so he tripled the size of it. 
you know, oh, to make it, it just an absolutely implausibly large place. But when in fact it was it was only ten thousand square feet. So um, I don't think I'll be doing that with my tiny with, with the kind of tiny little houses that I'll be looking at or batches that I will be looking at to go and hide in. Yes, um, you're quite right. I've just put the link there up there for those people who who want to see what in real estate terms is someone bragging about the size of their member. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, house price uh, deflation we saw in December. The question is whether the Reserve Bank really wants to go hardball and uh, drive prices down. I don't think they do. And the government will ensure, through tweaking regulation around the triple CFA, that the banks are less nervous about mm. uh, doing these affordability tests. I also take the bank's complaints about the triple CFA as the reason why they're saying no uh, with a grain of salt, because um, the banks themselves, rightly, uh, don't want to overexpose themselves to an inflated market. Yeah. So, um, yeah. do, do we, are we getting into? Is there? Sorry, are we getting into a kind of? Um, uh, you know, American style, um, uh, you know, un unserviceable mortgage problem here, bad no, debt problem. Be because when you look at the numbers on how much people are having to spend on servicing their mortgages here, collectively, it's less than 6% of disposable mm. income. Now, there are, of course, some people who've bought in the last year or so who um, are quite stressed in that they might be spending 40 or 50% of their disposable income on servicing the mortgage. But remember, for the last three or four years, the banks have already been doing uh, serviceability tests which say, can you afford a 5% mortgage rate, even though our mortgage rate is 2.3%? Mm. Mm. And we're not going to lend you money if you can't afford a 5% mortgage rate. Now, we're not quite at 5% yet, but um, if ANZ's forecast this week of a... Uh, a jump in the official cash rate to 3% by early next year actually turns out to be true. You would have 6% mortgage rates um, within a few months. Mm. Now, um, even if you got to 6% mortgage rates, the number of people who are actually stressed is very low. And that's because interest rates have been so low for so long. Incomes are so strong. Remember, we've got 3.4% unemployment and um, household disposable income growing at a rate of 5 to 6%. Mm -hmm. So there is actually not much mortgage stress around at all. And this is sure. the other thing. I do, I do wonder, though, Bernard, though, you know, somebody was talking about not being able to get any wood in Wellington and all this kind of stuff. You've got, you know, all the tradies in Auckland are fully, fully employed. Some of this has to, has to feed through into inflation. Some of the... Um, and I, and I know New Zealand has a very high level of, of independence in, in the food area, but you know we already know it's, it's one of the more expensive places in the world for food. This, this, it just seems to me that there is some inflationary pressure. Yeah, a lot of it's and coming from ordinary, particularly on you know on on what one, one in another country might refer to as working class people. Yeah, well, there is a lot of inflation coming through, particularly in energy prices mm. and food prices. Um, obviously, housing with rents. We got numbers this week showing rent inflation up near six percent per year at the moment, and the potential for a three dollar a litre petrol price mm. probably within the next uh, few months because oil mm. seems to be headed towards $100 a barrel. And certainly uh, we'll go there with Ukraine. Ah, uh, well, this is the thing. Uh, we can discuss that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this, is, this is one of the concerns. But remember, the Reserve Bank here ramping up interest rates isn't going to be able to change the oil price. It won't be able to, you know, change what the government itself and councils are doing with rate increases. Mm. It won't be able to uh, change uh, uh, a lot of the building materials prices. 
in part because these price increases are a result of not just demand pressure, but some of these companies are using are exercising their market power to put up prices. Yes. So you've got the supermarkets. Well, that's why I was thinking about supermarkets, yeah. yeah. I mean, have we got the Commerce Commission report? Competition Commission report coming on supermarkets. I think we have them. Yeah, so they're in the middle of the inquiry, get, so that that will yeah. will be an interesting one. And um, certainly, we're seeing signs with the fuel market, where the quite concentrated Z uh, Mobile BP hmm. uh, market uh, is they're increasing their profit margins, uh, and that is a. That is something that we haven't really looked at in New Zealand. I'm going to be driving to Nelson to fill, to fill up for that for that um, Nelson yeah, petrol, just, petrol what, company. Wait till you see Gull or Waitomo. Um, they yeah. always have cheaper prices. Yeah. Um, and so that's something. This is part of the problem: is that when you have a supply shock that causes inflation, using the the interest rate tool to try and um, squash down demand to avoid inflation rising. You're not actually, you know, changing the equation much, and no. um, this is why um, I'm I'm personally think the Reserve Bank shouldn't be hiking too much or at all, and that it should be using LVR controls and and lending controls to try and um, take some of the heat out of the housing market. Now, oil, this is really important and could be the big news to come in the next week or two. Ukraine. You mentioned in your um, weekly wheel bulletin for the spin-off that um, there are real fears that the Russians will jump over the border in some way into yeah. Ukraine or parts of Ukraine in the next few weeks. What, what are you hearing? Well, I, I'm hearing the same thing as anybody else who reads all the international papers, and I, I do talk to the odd the odd person um, who, who knows more about this than I do, which is not hard. But um, I think it is going to happen, Bernard. I think there is going to be an incursion. I thought uh, Biden's remark yesterday, which led people to believe, including the Ukrainian prime minister uh, president, to believe that um, a small incursion might be okay or might not, but might not win <laughs> a unified response, was not helpful. No. And and this is where I, I, a huge percentage of this to me is Putin playing an incredibly cynical game with his domestic audience, but also with Biden testing the U.S. administration. Um, Biden may be more sane and less volatile than Trump, but it doesn't mean that he isn't isn't sort of gameable. And uh, the way that Putin is clearly coordinating, in a sense, if, if not actually doing it, but certainly sharing information about this discussion uh, with um, Xi Jinping is extremely interesting because I think both are looking constantly for weakness in the United States or the kind of inability of, of Biden, and I'm being ageist in this, to cope in a sense, with the um, consistency of messaging, the speed of response, um, and and the diplomatic skill of this, and I, I just I, you know Sergey Lavrov, who if you remember when we were kids, there was a guy Andrei Gromyko was the um, Soviet foreign minister for many many years through the Brezhnev era, and he was just always everywhere and you know able to act and gave the Soviet Union far more leverage than it than it warranted. And um, Sergei Lavrov does that constantly, and it's partly through being profoundly cynical, using connections like Belarus, and also being prepared to go where people, other people, wouldn't go. Um, so my, my, you know, there are a number. The, the Economist did a, did a very nice job this week with a number of scenarios about, you know, including everything, everything from a uh, change of government in Kiev, you know, massive attack. Uh, I don't think it'll be that. The the scenario, and of course this will be famous last words, which I will eat various parts of my hat uh, next week on if necessary, but I, I suspect 
the kind of thing we will see is a military force to create a land bridge between Russia and Crimea. Um, you know, they've already seized, you know, Crimea in 2014 and paid a very low price for that. Um, Crimea has water problems. Um, it is it, it, If they do that, it will allow them to take over one of the main Ukrainian naval ports. And, and I suspect that also allows them to serve more effectively the two kind of breakaway areas that are close to Russia, Donetsk and Luhansk um, inside Ukraine, and feed them more weapons, make those make those two areas much, much more volatile for Ukraine to have to deal with. Meanwhile, Russia can just say, look, you, you know, NATO, you pushed up against our borders, we're pushing back. And I suspect that if they take back that, or take that territory, which is oddly known as Novorossiya, uh, New Russia, that that will be the tactic uh, certainly, you know there'll be there'll be the cyber attacks and everything else, um, but that would I would see that as an extremely logical extension of the diplomatic argument that Putin is making, which is essentially asking wanting to go back to the early '90s where Romania, uh, Poland, um, Czech Republic, and so on were not members of NATO but are now. So what what will the Americans do then? What, what sort of sanctions? And uh, I see that there's been talk of you know, cutting Russia out of the SWIFT international payments mm. networks, uh, potential sa- more sanctions on officials and um, plutocrats. <laughs> could that could that is that not scary enough for for Putin to to say? Oh, well, apparently the European. I mean, I have I have read that the Europeans um, are not terribly keen on pushing them out of out of SWIFT. Uh, I, I suspect also that you're going to if that happens. You're going to see China and Russia um, exerting their influence on the on the global financial financial system. I mean, Russia has very little influence on the global financial system, but China does. Um, Steve Cox there mentions Kaliningrad, which is this tiny nub. It's like a little thumb that sticks out just just north of uh, well, just um, yeah, north uh, of Poland, really. Um, and it's it's um, it used to be Polish territory. It's a tiny little nub that gives Russia access to the, not land access, because there's no land border straight through, but they, they could easily push a land border through if they wanted to, although that would be an extraordinary provocation because the Baltic states are all members of NATO. Mm. So I, I don't think they're going to go hard against, uh, a, a directly into a NATO country. But um, Kaliningrad is, is kept there, in a sense, as a perpetual irritation and to give them access into the Baltic um, and and influence over the Scandinavian countries to some extent as well. It's, it's a, it is a really interesting question and, and well worth keeping an eye on. But I, I suspect, as I say, rolling, rolling in, in effect, rolling the... Um, uh, rolling the Ukrainian border further, further west is... Is, is a real, would be would fit very closely with what Putin has done elsewhere. It would fit with the way he intimidates and, and con- consistently imitates um, Ukraine. I mean, I'm sorry, Georgia. Um, I, I, I put in my bulletin thing, and I can share it. There's a wonderful place or interesting place in Georgia where the Russian troops go out at night, more or less, and move the border posts about a meter a night further, <laughs> further into Georgian territory. So it's you know it's comedic. But you know, there's, there's 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 quite a good thing in it because there's some old bugger whose house is right on the border, and all of a sudden his bedroom is on the wrong side of the on the wrong side of the border. So you know, it has you know amusing amusing but really serious and destabilizing real world effects. All of this. Um, the, the the other the other Russian story that's lovely and it was too late for my um, world bulletin 
is uh, Bellingcat, the uh, British Investigative Service and others have today published hundreds and hundreds of photographs of the current state of, or very near to current state of Putin's palace uh, near near Sochi. Um, If if you remember Alexander Navalny, who's in jail, no no coincidence there, um, published a whole bunch of videos of the inside of Putin's palace, um, which the Kremlin kind of denies the existence of and certainly suggests that no public funds were spent on, which if you're running a kleptocracy, it may not mean that you have to have public funds spent on it. And it is a kind of um, Ceausescu-style mad um, gilded palace, you know, with... with, uh, um, some fairly extraordinary things. I would, I will put up a link to that. It's, it's absolutely fabulous. I'm, I mean, also, I, I was asked today, but we have a fan club, and there's a chap called Pete Dion who I noticed has been on oh, as well, who apparently thinks we're absolutely fabulous. I mean, not just our shirts, um, <laughs> as well, opposed to two, two old Krakenhaus yeah, talking a, box. It's a classic New Zealand story. Everyone knows everyone. Um, Pete yeah. was my editor at um, the Massey University student newspaper. Oh, really? About 30 years ago. So, oh, I, uh, I, I had the impression I, he was much younger than that. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's aged very well. And, yeah, um, yeah no, and is uh, now a major player in the... Um, uh, uh, on, in the corporate world in in, yes. in in Auckland, so it's um great to have such such great. Fans. So the other, the other story, Bernard, that I highlighted, apart from a couple in that in that thing, was was Boris Johnson. Oh and, yes. So are you, you gonna know, who's who's gonna put their hand up and bet that he's still here in a week's time? Well, I just, so I did say that the wheels were were moving against him. However, if you look at the you know there's the um, uh, Miranda Hyde, a very, very funny uh, British columnist, just described this cabinet as a cabinet for all the talentless. And, <laughs> you know, there are not very attractive options. You know, Dominic Raab, the, for- the former Foreign Secretary, now Justice, Justice Secretary, he's the Foreign Secretary who was um, famously um, on a beach on his suckboard. Bring, I'm, I'm bringing my suckboard back into this. Uh, when, Afghan- when, I, when, when we left Afghanistan, or when the, when the uh, decisions were made about who should come out of Afghanistan, um, you know, they're talking about a knighthood for a guy called Graham, Willi- uh, uh, Graham Williamson, who um, is a an absolutely odious little shit who was the defence <laughs> secretary and was famous, and he was also the uh, the former chief whip. I think he's now educa- he education secretary, and who, who was famous for having a tarantula called called Kronos on his desk. You know, we're really dealing with some serious, serious B team people. I w- I was thinking this this week because um, one of speaking of B team, one of the people to um, sort of push Boris to the brink this week is a is a guy who was described in the uh, in the British press as being a Tory grandee, and um, if this guy David David Davis can be called a Tory grandee, then the idea of being a grandee has slipped rather seriously from people who, such as you know um, Churchill's grandson and uh, people like. Um, uh, uh, how and you know some of the people who really were grandees, and da- but David da- David Davis is is a bit of a self-regarding um, pompous person, and so he used the famous phrase "In the name of God, go," God, yeah. which was thrown not only by Cromwell but was used most effectively in 1940 against Neville Chamberlain, and Oof. Chamberlain was gone the next day. Oof. So mm. um, you know it, he used it very effectively, but it was probably. Uh, that lovely expression that only journalists use, and we still don't really know what it means. Uh, it was a bit of a damp squib, mm. and a squib was the exploding part of a um, of a cannon of a cannon charge. Mm. But uh, so we had, this was a bit of a damp squib, and of course, 
a another Tory did cross the House and join Labour. And the trouble with that is that you know no one likes to join a um, a deserter, and so that may have held him up for a little while. But you know the options against um, the alternatives to Johnson are pretty unappealing. Um, these days, you have to have 54 of the Tory MPs uh, write a letter to the 19 to the chairman of the 1922 committee, which is a, a sort of arcane, you know, trade union of MPs, if you like. Although they'd hate that phrase. Good. Uh, uh, I'd heard and, they had 30 you know, letters already. Yeah, there's they? no, there's no. You don't have. Remember, you recall this? They used to have what was called a stalking horse. Uh, and when Thatcher went, there was a, I forget his name, an elderly, very elderly MP who acted as the stalking horse. Um, Heseltine and various others um, put their hats into the ring. And John Major, rather cunningly, uh, had, had toothache and so was unavailable to attend some of the cabinet, or the cabinet meeting, which was supposed to demand everybody's loyalty. And lo and behold, came from behind and, uh, and took over from Thatcher. So I, I'm not sure that Johnson will have to go but I, I doubt that he will be he will survive beyond may which is when the a lot of the local elections are but it also couldn't happen to a night you know he this is the cultural contamination or cultural weaknesses that he displays personal weaknesses that he displays in downing street and the perpetual dissembling in line that have characterized his career i mean i think we've discussed this before possibly he was fired by the times uh, newspaper in london for um falsifying a quote by a historian but the key aspect of that was that the historian was his uncle. <laughs> you know, so he is utterly he is utterly without shame. Yeah, and no, so it's, it's amazing yeah. when he got there, and that it's taken so long for everyone to sort of see through him, yeah. um, and that it's taken you know, the most awful appearance of um, arrogance and and um, sociopathy to have a party while the queen. Is grieving yeah, on her to own. About to sit alone. Yeah. He, of course, he didn't go to that. He Boris didn't go to that uh, funeral in Windsor because he wanted to, make, you know, allow them to have more room for for family members. Um, and we all saw that. You know, it's just it's deep hypocrisy. And I think you know this. It the the person who is uh, running the game on this, of course, is is his um, is Dominic Cummings, uh, who was played by ben Benedict Cumberbatch in the um, in a very good documentary about or drama rather about Brexit, you know, and he is presiding over or directly connected to the leaking of all of this material or the hinting that it's there, and then drip by drip, there's a little video here and a little video there, um, you know, and the ev the evidence mounts up. You know, meanwhile, 150,000 excess deaths in the UK. Brexit is a complete disaster from a from a domestic economic point of view. Um, he's you know potentially about to, to devastate the Northern Ireland um, the Good Friday Agreement. You know there's there's some real issues here, not just parties. Yes, so plenty to look ahead for in the next couple of weeks. A, will we go to red, and will Omicron get out? Perhaps it'll. So my guess is yes, we will go to red, Bernard. Probably yes. in two weeks. Red, Within yep. two weeks, do you reckon? Yep. Or do uh, you say four days? Did you say four days? Uh, I think there's. I think by this time next week we could be in red. Um, I am hearing from around the town that you know we've got three long weekends coming up. We've got Wellington anniversary, then Auckland University, Auckland anniversary, then Waitangi Day. Oh, three more beach weekends. Yeah. Fabulous. So one of we'll those weekends, I think, will be going to red. And mm -hmm. I suspect it sort of doesn't matter. If you're trying to organise a big event in the next six months, you might as well give up now because it's going to get there. Uh, and 
uh, and the other thing to watch for, I think, is um, some massive drama on financial markets in which we see a 5 to 10% slump, which forces the Fed to um, give up on its um, current plans to hike okay. interest rates. And an invasion of the Ukraine. Yes, to, to well, and maybe that's the sort of thing Ukraine. that could tr- trigger it. So Now, shall we do the skateboarding dogs? Oh, yes, please. Go for it. Okay, so my favourite skateboarding dog story, which I was listening to today on a very... The ABC in Australia does an absolutely superb weekly podcast. It used to be daily with um, Dr. Norman Swan, their medical correspondent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a... The, I thoroughly recommend it to everybody because it, it more than anything else I've heard here, and this is, which is not to say that there hasn't been excellent journalism here, particularly from uh, a chap called Keith Link, Lynch at um, Stuff, who I'd recommend for tracking on this, Um, Dr. Norman Swan has really explained uh, Omicron testing viruses, but the the key element he came up today is that we do not need apparently rectal masks. What? And why would you need rectal masks? Because there's been a suspicion that Omicron could be spread by farts. Farts! Which he he addressed, and and the way he described it was, unless you're a Scotsman who isn't wearing his, who's wearing a kilt and not wearing any underwear, you, you know, you're probably okay. So you can't I mean, buy an N95 underwear? Well, I mean, I think an underwear basically is N95 because apparently, and this is, there is a tiny bit of seriousness, as we, as we know, the um, Omicron uh, tends to uh, address the upper airways and not the lungs. But apparently it is also not um, uh, largely present in the gut. Oh. So if you if you know a naked a naked well semi naked Scotsman as we as that famous old I think it was Harry Seacombe joke joke about uh, uh, is there anything worn under the kilt? No, it's all in perfect working order. <laughs> um, <laughs> just taking you back to the eighteen thirties for Harry Seacombe there, um, but uh, that would appear to be not a problem. But there are many other problems, and the ABC is well worth listening to. Now, were we going to discuss gin, Bernard? Because I have oh, some yes, things gin. to say about gin. Yes. So, uh, I am not a huge drinker, but I really, I, I, gin drinker, but I, but I, I may well become so. Uh, I bought a friend of mine a bottle of um, Great Barrier Island gin, which comes in a very, very beautiful bottle, shaped oh. like a, or meant to style, style like a, like a, um, like a Kinner shell. And she says it's the best gin she's ever had. So the but great. I also tried one called the Botanic. Oh, the Botanist. That's nice. Which is yep. also yummy and comes from Scotland, but I quite like the New Zealand thing. Uh, and a friend of ours um, is involved in gin in New Zealand, which I'm just trying to find the name of. Oh my God! I will put it up. I will put it up lately, later. Um, uh, uh, I've got. I, I, this is terrible. But you're right about tonic. So tonic is is critical. I tend to favour the uh, Mediterranean tonic from um, uh, from Fever Tree. Ah. Which is astoundingly expensive. I looked. I look, I bought some today at the supermarket, and I looked to see that it is a dollar per hundred mils in the big bottles, and a dollar twelve per hundred mils in the little bottles. Which I which I tend. Oh, good. Thank you. Best NZ Gin is the source. Okay, we'll take a look at that. Um, and and here's the uh, Great Barrier Island Gin, which I'm oh, yeah. now going to ask someone to get me for Christmas. Yeah, or, yeah, or exactly. Um, oh, I know what what it's called. Just one second. It's called the Vicar's Son. Yep. So the gin my friend, our fr- a friend of ours makes, is called The Vicar's Son, and it just won the 2021 Australian Gin Awards, but it's made in Auckland, 
I think it's made actually in Point Chevalier, which is you know, a very sophisticated part of part of Auckland. Um, but uh, the other thing that I had been drinking a bit of is Seedlip, which is um, the non-alcoholic gin. It's not quite. Remember Clayton's, the, the drink you have when you're not having a drink? Yep, yep. Uh, and Seedlip is that. Uh, and there's no surprise there that Diageo bought that company for, I think, $500 million uh, a, a couple of years ago because they're still selling it as... Um, at sixty dollars a bottle for um, you know a collection a collection of brewed bot- of refined botanics, which is bonkers. But um, anyway, that's yes. what's in them. Yes. That just shows where middle class Ponsonby wankers, or at least I am. <laughs> well, we should look forward to our um, our, our uh, subscribers' suggestions on the best gin and tonic solutions. Oh yes, next well, Friday. Also, just, just on the other thing about this, so. Uh, some years ago, I had a gin and tonic in Cape Town, which I'm still trying to recreate. And it had sage and thyme. And Ooh. it was also the 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 um, the uh, glass had been rubbed with sage and thyme. And it was absolutely sensational. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of work in my botanicals, uh, my little vegetable garden outside my spot, my uh, herb garden. Um, not so much to cook with, but to create ever better um, confections. Fantastic. Now, we look forward to lots of um, uh, gin and tonic next Friday. On yeah, the, and it's, on it's, somebody says, what the hell is happening with limes? I spent $40 a kilo on three limes the other day. It was ridiculous. $40 you know, a kilogram? I yeah, I don't go to, I don't go to Farrow to Farrow to spend that kind of money. I go uh, to spend that kind of money in Farrow for all sorts of other things. So this is a good reason to put up interest rates, I think. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, in fact, it's just as well I haven't shared that with my bank because, you know, otherwise they'd say not only are you drinking too much uh, coffee, uh, gin, and uh, too much squashed, eating too much squashed avocado, you're buying limes, you stupid bugger. That's, that's right. <laughs> Hey, um, fantastic to see you again, uh, Peter. Thank you all to our our attendees. Thank you very much, everybody, for attending. Ka kite anō, and we'll see you all next Friday at 4 o'clock.